Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks for downloading this podcast. And do yourself a favor to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. Welcome to the Blue Hotel, the podcast with the open mind, episode eight this time with a reminder you can go back anytime you like and enjoy previous episodes, each with a different guest, each with a different theme, and each climax with an erotic bedtime story narration. It's fiction, mostly. It's steamy, always. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm glad you're here. Before we slide into the episode eight theme, let's take a second to breathe. I know breathing is like blinking, it's involuntary, but sometimes when you're concentrating or stressed out or in conflict or in danger, we all have a tendency to hold our breath a little bit without realizing it. Breathing just enough to survive. It's the deep conscious breathing that brings us increased wellness, ability and strength and peace and especially calm, which we can all use a little more of in a world besieged by Twitter. (laughs) And Trump, it always begins with a focus on this moment, not yesterday, not tomorrow, right now. I should say if you're listening in the car and operating a vehicle, please don't close your eyes. So here we go. I'm going to breathe in the air with uh, three big, deep breaths. Let's do this first one together. A big breath in. Hand out. All right, we're going to do another one, not two more. A second big uh, breath in. And out. And one more, let's do one more big breath in. And out. And that's something you should do often if you feel the need. I, I do. You know, slow it down and take it easy and find a place where you can deal with that crap in that text or that phone call or that whatever the challenge is. Approach it with uh, some clarity and some confidence and some calm more than anything. Now, this time on the Blue Hotel Podcast, a new special guest, and before I introduce her to you, there's a couple things I want to share. You know how they say you're just one decision away from an entirely different life, and that leads me to another truth. In the right context, people say there are victims and there are volunteers, which speaks to what you will allow and what you encourage and boundaries. 
You set them for you, for your peace of mind, for your well-being. you got to say what you feel and what you believe. And you know what else you have to do? You have to give yourself permission to change your mind as you wish. Because the more information you have from sources with which you connect and learn and trust allow you to evolve. What you thought and what you did last year or last week may not work anymore. It's up to you. Ask yourself in the present, what do I want? What are my goals? What are the things I hope to achieve? What are the things I say are important but then don't follow through with? And I'll tell you this, what is not the answer ever is regret. Because you can't change what happened to you. You can't change what you did to yourself. You can't change what you did to someone else. You can only change the way you do things today and moving forward. And there's something else that's not the answer in addition to regret. And that's shame. Don't shame yourself. Don't shame them. There's no positive outcome. Shame just holds us back. It gets in the way. It's of no use. The answers come in being present, being now, breathing and feeling from the heart and from the gut, keeping your logical brain intact but listening to how your body reacts to what you're thinking and what you're doing and what you're reading, texts from her or from him, the phone calls you have, the face-to-face conversations you have. How do you feel when it's happening? Do you rush to response or do you take time to consider what's being said and by whom? And perhaps why. And when it's uncomfortable, don't brush it under the rug. And if you do, come back to it. Come back to some understanding. Move to work forward, not in fear, but with the confidence that will lead you to the change you know you need to make. Whether it's small adjustments or grand sweeping changes, it's up to you, only you. Now, I'm not anti anything beyond things that are mean spirited. It's about intention. But one thing I have given a lot of thought to over the years repeatedly is the effect that alcohol has on our decisions. I'm speaking for me. And the lost days from hangovers and the foggy recollections of what happened and the realizations of what went down and who was affected, it can be heavy as hell. And you know, it has a lot to do with the culture in which we were raised. How was booze used in the home? Was it dinner time? Was it in the evening? Was it backyard parties and family functions? Was it weekly or was it daily or was it in the morning? Was it to excess? How did you and the people around you handle it and react to it? Were there laughs? Were there tears? Were there missed school days and work days? Was there verbal abuse or physical violence? Was there inappropriate behavior? Were there non-consensual encounters? Did you do things that led to shame or regret? Those things we need to get away from. Now here's something to consider. Sometimes doing the work starts with considering the role we play in our own suffering. And if you're not suffering, that's fantastic. I'm pleased for you. And if you are, I feel for you and want better for you. And I can tell you this too. I've actually found a way forward where I can have a couple of nice glasses of wine or beer and enjoy them. I kind of give myself a two-drink limit, and I don't always stick to it, but usually I do. Every one of us is our own liquor control board, as they say. But if it's gotten beyond your control, 
do seek help. Make the change. And all of that to say that's just part of the conversation with today's special guest as we touch on a theme we'll call sex and sobriety and the pursuit of self-actualization. We're all on a path to doing better, feeling better, having better lives. And these conversations, by the way, are designed to flow like a river does, naturally. So here it comes. We did Our special guest this time is focused on helping to make the people with whom she works and lives and loves live more meaningfully and intentionally with more ability to achieve their goals and not burn out. She has 10 plus years of integrative wellness experience. As a certified health coach, she's a plant-based chef, a yoga teacher and consultant. She not only has a passion for making wellness a way of life, but she brings to us today thoughts around sex and sobriety and the self-pleasure practice and thoughts around what we'll call the new feminine trinity, which is intriguing to me, as the Blue Hotel welcomes from Megan Swan Wellness, Megan Swan. Hello, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. Super thrilled. I mean, I discovered you like I discover um, several of our guests thus far through your Instagram account, which is chock full of intriguing, insightful thoughts, comments, memes. It's fantastic. How has social media affected what you do for a living? Mm, good question. Well, I mean, I think it sort of was this beautiful conduit for me during the pandemic in terms of, I mean, I was already using it, but I really dove much deeper in uh, in March of 2020. And it essentially allowed me to take my business global and also just connect with so many incredible humans around different shared interests, um, sobriety being one. I really didn't have much of a community around sobriety pre-pandemic and also around sexuality. Like that's a huge thing that I've really doubled down on focusing on this year in particular and all sorts of other, I don't know, fun and spiritual witchy <laughs> sub themes. Uh, I feel like, you know, anytime that you feel less excited to be on the platform, take a break. And uh, that's always served me in terms of um, my relationship with it for my business, but then also personally. So that, that that's such a practical way to look at it. If you're feeling anxious or whatever the feeling is around something, a break. Yeah, well, I think the aspect of social media uh, implants this stream of, I mean, essentially it's fear, but you know, you, you feel like you're latching on to somebody else's timeline that you need to be there all the time and show up in a certain consistent way. And um, you know, I don't think that's really true. <laughs> I think what's really true is when you show up and really authentically and organically share some, you know, doesn't have to be positive energy, but something real, um, people identify with that. And when you have sort of a big picture view of its use, it's much more enjoyable. I had a feeling you would say uh, the word uh, authentic. Authenticity is everything. 
And um, people say the practical way to do social media is post at 9 a.m. when everyone's eyes are on the thing. And you're wasting your time if you post at 11.30 p.m., you know, the evening before. But my authenticity isn't looking necessarily for likes. What it's looking for is for me to be authentic and feel good about what I'm posting. So if it's 11.30 and I get five likes the next morning instead of 400 you know, if I'd posted it in the morning, I don't care. I just want to be me and share in an authentic way so that it doesn't become this planned or contrived thing, but it becomes a reflection of who you really are. And right. I get the feeling when I look at yours now that I've had just a couple of minutes with you so far, but it is who you really are. You're representing yourself with authenticity. Thank you. You're welcome. Tell us about something you did, something you did in the last couple of days that gave you great pleasure or surprised you about yourself or the people around you? Uh, well, yesterday we went bowling. <laughs> and <laughs> I feel like I used to be good at bowling, but I've, you know, I was never amazing. I was never on a team. Um, and I have two sons and, you know, one of them is very extroverted and hasn't bowled that much in his life, but is very good at it. And the other has good moments and is a lot more sensitive and, and timid and, so it was just interesting watching the dynamics. And for me, everything is sort of like a, could be a conscious practice. For me, it's, you know, being a better parent um, is always high on my list. And so, you know, really trying to look at the opportunity, you know, one sort of trying to trigger the other in terms of rubbing in his success and the other is not feeling great. But then the moment that he started doing well, he was doing the exact same thing to the older one. And so... Just, you know, watching our human nature and, and just trying to be um, the best guide. Uh, I think that's sort of been my better lesson in the more recent years in terms of parenting is taking a step back and just witnessing and providing guidance um, and not being so dominating, which I think I, I did in the earlier years. And so it's you, uh, two sons and a partner, the four of you? He, he wasn't that bowling. That's why I didn't mention him. He was um, working this weekend. He had to go to go to Guatemala for a surgery. But um, thank you, by the way. Was it five or 10 pin? It was 10 pin. And, you know, uh, one game, the oldest beat everyone. And the I, like, I just did horrible. Like I was just gutter ball, gutter ball. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and then the oldest was trying to give me advice, which I found um, endearing at first and then infuriating. And so just like, you know, witnessing my own. Uh, yeah demise so yeah where are you now without you know giving the address where are you now and why are you there <laughs> well i guarantee you, you wouldn't find it anyway it like doesn't right. exist on google maps it's mexico um so i live in a city called tuxla gutierrez which is the capital city of the state of chiapas you know mexico has 32 states and the state is not very well known although there are a lot of um, european tourists in a town close by that call is called san cristobal de las casas but we border Oaxaca, which a lot of people um, have heard of. It's got really incredible surfing and sort of more minimalist beaches and mezcal production. And so we're south of Quintana Roo, where Cancun is, and we border Guatemala. Your language is very good. You speak Spanish incredibly well. Is Did it come naturally? Did it come easily? And, and am I hearing correctly? You are great at speaking it? Yeah, well, I, I was thinking, I'm like, how do you know? <laughs> I mean, I I do okay. I've I've published a book in Spanish, so I have a decent level. I will say that after two years of focusing on getting my business online and global, and therefore I have 
you know, only a few clients that I still serve in Spanish. My nuanced Spanish has has left the building to some degree, but um, yeah, it was not easy. Well, as a Canadian, we're we're forced to study French like all through school. You know, language is like a muscle. Like if you it's use it or lose it. So what I and I never did well in French. It was always like this love hate relationship. You know, I liked the idea of being bilingual, and I just it was didn't come easily. However, Spanish came a lot more easily um, because there's you know it's very literal pronunciation of all of the syllables and and you know I had this other massive motivator which was you know at the crux of the early like I've been with my husband um, now 12 years and the first couple years you know we met because I was his private English teacher and so I had the misguided understanding that he wanted our relationship to be in English, or that was like some sort of bonus for him. But it wasn't until I became fluent in Spanish. Um, and, I, and I really did that at the time, not so much for our relationship, more for the ability. Well, I did it for the ability to open a business, a yoga studio, which I would have to, to teach in Spanish and I needed more fluency. And I did that in order to you know, continue seeing where the relationship was going. I mean, I, I love Spanish. I love having children that are, you know, hundred percent bilingual. And, um, so now my nine-year-old is, is his English teacher. And, um, you know, I, I would say both children have a higher level. <laughs> oh, back up the bus. So how long we're talking about communication suddenly, because you, you, you noted that how, uh, your partner, um, who became your husband wasn't clear on, uh, what language you're going to, he thought it might be English. How long did it take before, you know, you came to the conclusion or, or you both understood that that wasn't the case? I was being lazy about <laughs> really getting fluent um, because I was teaching English as my work and we were, you know, not allowed to speak anything except English at the school. I lived in an English bubble. I had all expat girlfriends. Um, you know, there was very little... You know, I had functional Spanish to get get around the city, that kind of thing. But I couldn't have uh, a heart-to-heart conversation, you know, a philosophical conversation. And as I learned later, I certainly couldn't argue very well in Spanish either. <laughs> uh, so I think it just became clear that if we wanted our relationship to get to that next level, I mean, there's something about when you're first getting to know someone and it's just energy, like you're not even sure he didn't understand a lot of what I was saying, but didn't really let on. So, but it works. I mean. <laughs> we were making love 23 hours a day. We didn't talk. That happens too, right? There can be less words to your point about energy. There can be more communication through body language and just through being together. Exactly. Um, Megan, we each have our pivotal moments in life, crossroads or 180s or however one wishes to frame dramatic change. If you would, tell us uh, something about your big one of some 10 plus years ago. You, you, you made a big change, did you not? You know, at 30, I decided to pack up my bags, my life, uh, sell, sell the, what existed of my life in Toronto at the time, and uh, go on my own eat, pray, love journey of, of such. I was, you know, a huge fan of that book. I still am. Um, and... My plan at the time was to spend a year in Mexico and then go to Bali for a year and then I, you know, see where the universe wanted to take me kind of thing. And then the joke's on me because 13 years later, I'm still on my first stop here in Mexico. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it was a 
massive shift in so many things. I mean, I was actually just talking with one of my best friends and she was saying how she remembers, like, I just came back from a trip to Mexico for my birthday where my parents at the time were spending every March in Puerto Vallarta. And so they invited me down and and I hadn't been to Mexico at the time. And, you know, I was still was not a very enlightened individual at that point, but I essentially found myself again on a dance floor. I met a DJ and, you know, there was like this, you know, I won't use the word love. It was, you know, like there was this energy between us and he just sort of helped me remember, you know, at that time I was, sort of in this relationship that I wanted to go one way and the other, you know, my partner wasn't there yet. Um, Previous to that, I'd been in a really verbally abusive uh, marriage and I just kind of forgotten who I was and, you know, what I wanted to do or what was possible. And and I just, something about Mexico. And so then I went back and it was the middle of, you know, the H1N1 crisis and like all sorts of negative news about Mexico and then in the US and Canada. And I'm like, yeah, I'm moving to Mexico. And it's like, what? It's insane. I'm like, yeah. So I'm just going to get certified to be an English teacher because that's easy. And I'll teach yoga when I can. And um, yeah, I'm just going to sell my car. And I packed up my, and I put some things in storage at the time. Um, and you know, I sort of gracefully exited my existing position. And um, I think maybe three or four months later, I was down here again. And then I knew I didn't want to be like on a beach location. I wanted to be in a sort of more um, historical um, colonial city in the center somewhere. And there's this website that has some more alternative, you know, English teaching jobs. And so there's three guys from um, Portland, Oregon that opened an English school here. And they, you know, so I had, it wasn't Zoom, it was what Skype at the time or whatever. Um, and I just really liked the owner. And at the time I was staying at, an, I was, I had studied Spanish quite a bit. So I was at a Spanish school and staying with friends in Queretaro, um, which is in sort of North of Mexico city. And they, had lived in San Cris, which is the town that's close by. They're like, mm, I don't know if you're going to like Tuxla, but you know, Chiapas is incredible. And then my boyfriend at the time is like, oh my God, it's the most beautiful state in the whole country. And I'm like, oh, when did you go? And he's like, oh no, no, I've never been, but there are commercials. Like it's really beautiful. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I just kind of took this risk. And you know, if you had asked me that I would drive that same street that I arrived on, you know, 13 years ago for like more than the year, I would have never believed you because it's one thing when you go with the idea that this is, you know, like a, a temporary thing, like everything's exotic. And it's another thing when you consider staying, how you look at a place. And then it's a whole other level when you consider raising children in that same place. So it's been definitely an evolution over time, um, but at the end of the day, you know, something drew me here and, you know, my husband and I, like I said, have been together for 12 years. Previous to that, I'd never been with anybody for over three years. I definitely believe that some sort of universal magic got me here. I love that. And and, and what a segue that uh, you unwittingly just gave me because... Uh... I was thinking about that song, John Sebastian, The Love and Spoonful, Do You Believe in Magic? Evidently, from the posts that I see you doing and and from your website, meganswanwellness.com. And if anybody wonders, it's M-E-G-A-N, Megan Swan, 
Um, you do believe in magic and tell, give us a little context around that word as you see it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think to me it's energy, you know, like I'm not a religious person. Um, I've been increasingly spiritual. I think I, you know, my gateway drug to spirituality, if you will, was getting uh, certified to teach yoga. Maybe the only thing that I was doing for my wellness at that time was having great sex. <laughs> Beyond that, you know, I was not living a healthy lifestyle or um, consciously making very many decisions, to be quite honest. And yoga, like, really changed my relationship with my thoughts, with my body, with um, my desire to feel strong instead of um, to feel sexy, for example. Or And I really think that that was like a seed that was planted. And then, you know, many things have happened and like all change and growth and evolution. It's not a straight continuum. You know, it's kind of like, you know, a bumblebee kind of on the graphic on the chart. Yeah. Uh, but full circle, I've come to think of spirituality, sexuality and creativity as like this, basically they're one and the same. And that is your magic, you know, and you can tap into that magic. So I think it's in that sense, a synonym for energy, you know, like it's a frequency, it's something that you can cultivate, it shifts, it changes, but essentially to deny that you don't have the capacity to tap into it, I think is um, unfortunate at the very least. Spirituality, creativity, sexuality, Tell us more. I love that you've put them together in that sort of trinity. So I um, have a spiritual mentor. Her name is Julia, Julie Pyatt or Srimati. She's um, been a mentor of mine for a couple of years now. And uh, I, I'm not even sure it's hers, but I mean, that's where I, get, I got it from. And I think uh, it's really sort of been this, well, I, like I said, this year specifically, I really chose to prioritize um, refocusing, refreshing, renewing my relationship personally with my own sexuality. Like it was really quite, maybe not dormant, but on the back burner in say like the first nine, 10 years of my motherhood, um, which I don't think is a really uncommon reality. Uh, but I just have found that again, like planting the seed from the yoga, you know, I've been practicing various types of meditation over the years and really just developing like what I developed first was my ability to sense movement of energy, movement of energy through my body. Also, you know, connecting with energy that's outside of me or feeling more grounded based on visualizing where energy can move. And so I, you know, that was a gateway in order for me to now when I'm, you know, this year I decided to prioritize in terms of my my time, my energy, and, and my investments in, in a course all around um, the sexuality relationship you have with yourself. And, and I think, you know, with all everything we do, you know, if you can't dial it in personally alone, um, you know, in any wellness practice, really, you know, it starts with you and you figuring it out, and then it can really um, magnify and support you in all of your other relationships. And so one thing that maybe doesn't seem intuitive, but, you know, it's really improved my parenting. Like I've become a better mother, which is very counterintuitive, certainly from a religious standpoint, there's not like a direct connection or we don't think of, you know, the all nurturing mother 
being like also having an incredible sex life. Like maybe we're okay with those two separate ideas. You know, it's like a lot of taboo, I guess, around those being intertwined in any way, right? And I've just come to understand that for me personally, at the very least, and and I've seen it working for, you know, a lot of women in this course, also women that are clients, male clients as well, you know, really just shifting this perspective around sexual energy as this conduit to a lot of things. So in in terms of, you know, tapping into like, what do you actually desire in life? What actually, you know, lights your heart on fire? Or, you know, where can you feel more inspired in your life if you were just to sort of utilize this sexual energy in that sense? And ultimately, I now see it as an essential wellness tool, like having a pleasure practice, which to me, the distinction between a pleasure practice and masturbating is, is the, the objective, right? So pleasure practice uh, may lead to orgasm, but that's not the objective. The objective is just to feel more connected with yourself, using all five senses to really tune into everything that's going on and receiving pleasure, um, whether it's from yourself or from a partner. And I think those are all just, there's like many threads there that I've completely rewritten in my head, certainly from, you know, a lot of them are, are new. Like I, it's not that they were forgotten. It's just not narratives that were presented to me as a young woman. And then others are just sort of, you know, challenging the status quo on, on what self-care needs to look like. You know, I, I really think if you're missing out on this aspect of holistic wellness, you're really cutting yourself off from this massive source of energy, feeling inspired. For me, that's like where the creativity comes. You know, like we're no no one feels creative all the time. It's an ebb and flow, and there, you know, the, that's why it's energy. It moves. It's it's always changing. Having like a spiritual sense of self, and then a spiritual connection to nature to all living things i would argue and and all of these things when you start realizing like how interconnected they are i think there's just this deeper acceptance and love and space to draw on that as a source um of of well-being you remind me of lisa o who's a mom who's my last guest from please pinch me hard Dot com, a mom who, much like you, after some years of raising a couple of children, rediscovered herself, became more self-aware about her needs now. And, and she talked about taboos and how the, the twain she'll never meet between, you know, raising kids successfully and your own sexuality. But it made me think the, the analogy of, you know, put your oxygen mask on first so that you could be present to help those in your life in a more fulfilling way. Um, it's pretty wonderful. This is something I'm thinking about as you're speaking, because I was this guy, and I bet we have some people listening that are this guy or this girl. You, you, you speak about spirituality. You speak about um, all of these things around wellness with confidence, insight, and with experience. When I used to hear people speak the way you speak and the way I'm increasingly speaking in this space, I just thought, oh, what are they even talking? It, it seemed a, a lot, and it seemed 
is sort of esoteric and it seemed difficult to digest. One thing that really spoke to me, like I said, I was extremely atheist sort of the first 20 years of my life. Um, I had um, a very Catholic grandmother who just kind of like piped in with, you know, guilt and, and shame when, when she could and um, raised my mom Catholic and though, you know, my mom only went to church because that was where she could sing in the choir for free. And there were, she could bring us, she was like a divorced mom who needed uh, to do something for herself once a week. And that's what she did. And what appealed to me about the spirituality in the yoga world, and I mean, that's like a whole other conversation because I'm, you know, I have lots of criticism for the yoga world. But what it did birth in me was this curiosity. And I think that's well, specifically around your relationship with meditation and breath work and, and spirituality, there wasn't a lot of dogma or the dogma was optional, you know, like it was more the message of, well, you just got to try it. And like, you tell me what's your experience. And so I was like, hmm, well, I can get on board with that. And so it just, it um, developed this deeper sense of curiosity and they're, you know, all about the beginner mindset. And even to this day, you know, you can always get something new out of these initial sort of interactions that you had with a given practice that really spoke to you or ultimately transformed you. But now you feel you're at this, you know, advanced level. We can talk about, you know, in terms of um, meditation, breath work, uh, embodiment, dance, like whatever it is, if you really go back to those initial points and maybe like think of it sometimes like someone who, who just is not buying in, how they might be critical of it. You know, there's always something new to learn for yourself. And, you know, I think it just comes down to like one thing that I just never jived with, with, with organized religion was when, you know, I had a lot of situations where people were like pushing their beliefs on me. And, um, you know, now at, at 43, I, I respect everyone's beliefs, like whatever they are, I think, particularly as a coach, it would be naive of me to not incorporate whatever their existing spiritual or religious beliefs are into a holistic wellness uh, strategy. Because essentially, whatever you believe is extremely powerful. It dominates really your thoughts, your actions, like everything you do in life. So ultimately, you could look at it in the, the, the modern is like, they're just different mindsets. And so you can thread bits and pieces of different mindsets into what works for you. And that will shift over time. If the mindsets are devoid of things like um, judgment and shame and regret and, and things that aren't really positive and don't bring you to the present, what you believe is, is who you are. I was agnostic, or I think I still am. I believe there's something bigger, greater, more powerful. I'm just not sure what it is, as opposed to the atheism of, I don't believe it's anything. This is just we're just here, doing the best we can. The idea that faith is believing without seeing, believing in something, is is a pretty great start. You talk about working with high performers. Now I've got to think that that's who they are um, intrinsically, but they could be doing better. They haven't reached their potential, and that's what you're there to help them do. They're already at a at a strong level with strong potential. What are you bringing? to them if they, you know, go to your website and, and say, I want to work with you on, as you framed it, a strategy for wellness. When I say high performance, I mean, they 
by choice or by drive or by love are in it, a career or, um, you know, they're an entrepreneur that is extremely demanding and they just need tools to help them have more sustainable energy, maybe a deeper confidence when they're making decisions, a deeper sense of ease. And the strategy word that I use is because I am seeing, you know, people are actually becoming overwhelmed by their wellness routines, health and wellness routines. And I like to look at it really as a minimalist, you know, here are some tools that you can thread in. Please don't do them all at the same time. Like let's focus on a few things at once and understand and then help, help teach these individuals how to read their you know own body and mind being like, you know, know what this week, I'm not going to do that. That practice doesn't make sense for, my workload or my travel schedule or whatever, um, I can revisit it again next week when it makes more sense instead of it being this, you know, week long sort of layer of guilt and shame that they're not achieving that wellness practice, just helping people understand how they select their own wellness practices to what intensity they need to implement them at a given time in their lives, because we're always changing, you know, whether it be through seasons, um, aspects of our life, you know, whether we have children, whether we don't, there's just so many ways that our lives shift and change. And it can be really overwhelming if we have all this pressure on ourselves to maintain this exact same um, disciplined routine every single place we go, every single season, every single year of our lives. When someone's at the very sort of beginning of interest in taking you know, health and wellness to the next level or prioritizing it, I would say more structure is maybe good. But then what I'm really, I tend to work with people that are highly aware of all the things they should be doing and they're not doing them how they feel like they should be doing them. And therefore it's more guilt and fear that are like, oh my goodness, if I stop working out at this level, because I started, you know, 10 years ago, this routine, or a year ago, and there's just fear around letting it go. And, you know, that fear is actually extremely counterproductive to your overall wellness. And so um, that's why I, I look at it as this uh, no one size fits all wellness, you know, that giving people permission to really dial in the practices that make sense for them in the way that it makes sense for them um, at a given point in time. It's hard to change someone's, it's hard to change your own habits. We form habits and we do them. And sometimes we're not even conscious of why or how, but we're just doing them because we did them yesterday and we're going to do them tomorrow. But being flexible to see what works. So like you said, less is kind of more. There's 19 things you could be doing to move things forward. But you also have kids and a job and this and that, and, and, and you have to commute to work, whatever the thing is. You can only do so much. So the flexibility around how you might do it a bit differently tomorrow is really important. I like a course or a strategy uh, where where you are able to to make changes based on how things are going. And I get the sense that's really what you're talking about and what you do with people when you work with them. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, to your to your point, if someone is just feeling overwhelmed about all the things that they need to do, it's essentially just helping them realize like how important it is to just do something ideally, instead of 
nothing because I feel like when we have so many things that we should be doing, it's just like, oh, scratch everything. Or for example, I don't have 30 minutes to work out. Well, you know, dancing for two to five minutes is going to really shift your energy and it's going to do a lot of great things in the body and, and, and in your mind. Um, and who doesn't have time to dance for five minutes? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, instead of like, I don't, you know, it's it, we have all of these sort of limiting beliefs that shut us off from doing it how we were told it has to be done. So just finding ways that you can really just thread micro shifts or micro practices uh, so it doesn't become overwhelming and ultimately, you know, contribute to burnout. I'm super interested in going down this road now. And you also reminded me, and I'll, and I'll point people in the direction of episode one, where Laura Desiree spoke about meditation, as you did. And she talked about how she and a lot of people have a hard time meditating in the traditional sense of the word. And she said, you know what's a meditation that's really great, and she does it every morning and probably every evening, is masturbation. Uh, and there's creativity and spirituality attached to all of that. So let's keep that in mind as we also talk about sobriety. And it was something that came up on a phone call I had earlier today before we got on, Megan. Someone said to me, you talk a lot about or you think a lot about sobriety and sexuality. And, and, and why is that? And I said, because there's a greater depth to be plumbed and realized when you're incredibly present with a partner or self when you're not uh, inebriated. And, uh, and I'm not talking one drink, I'm talking inebriated. And they said, well, tell me more. And I said, well, let's think about this. When people are in a car crash, the person that comes out unscathed is the person that was drunk because their body's so relaxed, they either didn't get hurt and or don't even remember it. And sex to me can be the same way if the only way you're participating is in a state of drunkenness. Tell me about your, you're in Mexico. We mentioned tequila a few minutes ago. Tell me about your relationship to alcohol and how it has evolved. Yeah. Uh, well, it's sort of like a, a big one, but I will say that, um, yeah, it's become quite clear to me that, you know, I always enjoyed sex and alcohol gave me permission to be more bold about getting it essentially as a young woman. Yeah. I mean, I certainly had some very lovely partners over the years. Um, and I was blessed to have, you know, my first sexual encounter was with, um, a boyfriend that I loved and I was with for, you know, a year plus. And, you know, most of the beginning experiences I had were not in an alcohol haze. However, then there were, you know, a decade plus that that was mostly the case. And I think to your point, it's just about presence. And it's pretty much impossible to have a energetic, if you want to use your word spiritual or not, you know, authentic experience. You know, I think we all sort of seek out these toxins to numb out whatever stress and um, I've had a lot more awareness that for me, it's be, you know, at the time it was more of this, not excuse, but it like enabled me to do a bunch of things that maybe weren't as socially acceptable unless, oh, she's drunk, you know? So I would be very bold about approaching men. I would dance up on bars. I would um, do a lot of like really 
quote unquote, risky or promiscuous things. On one hand, I always felt like it was coming from an empowered place. But on the other hand, not really, because I wouldn't do it unless I was in this haze, right? I wouldn't do it sober. So sobriety, which for me is, you know, going on four and a half years, has really enabled me to find like a much deeper spirituality, a much deeper ability to get into meditation deeply. Uh, essentially, it's like numbness versus clarity. And so the more clarity that you can develop over time. Um, and for me, like now doing pleasure practices where it's, you know, essentially I can turn myself on just with my thoughts and like then moving that energy through the different energy points in the body or the chakras, however you want to think of it and having like a whole meditative experience. That's also, you know, sexually satisfying in that sense. Although, you know, like, like that's not the point. The point is, kind of playing with that energy and you kind of see where it goes. And I don't think, like, I'm not going to say it's impossible to, to get there otherwise, but I wouldn't have personally gotten there without the, the sort of removing that layer of, you know, on some level unconsciousness that alcohol provides us in order to, to just be so much more aware of, of myself at time, you know, in the situation of, of being with my partner or my partner. At the end of the day, like for me, it all goes back to energy. Like I wouldn't have, as a young woman, really focused on like the energy at all. <laughs> that started sort of from the yoga world. And, and now because I've practiced over time and I can really experience it personally, therefore I believe in it, you know, it's just fascinating to me. And so it's like this ongoing experiment that you just kind of want to get back to. You position it as energy, and 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 I position it in a complementary way. I think as uh, it's just another word you used, which was presence, being in the moment, and and I'm not for a second ever going to say that drinking bad, sobriety good, but for us, for those of us who want to go deeper, want to be present, want to feel more, want to remember the feeling, want to feel it again. Um, so Thursday night, you know, out with the boys or out with the girls and went to see a thing and did an activity and had a few drinks. Great. But the next night with your partner, um, it's not the same environment. And it can be so satisfying if you're completely sober and in touch, not only with your own feelings as you move through whatever it is you're doing sexually together, but be able to relate to the person by seeing how they are reacting to what you're doing. And, and vice versa. It's a wonderful thing. I can't recommend it more than I am now. And I'll never stop recommending it because I wasn't ever cognizant of how good it could be until I tried it. And so, you know, the definition of insanity is, you know, doing things the same way and expecting different results. If people are listening and having thoughts around, wow, I've never tried that. I've always had a few drinks before I've had sex, whether it's even with my own regular partner or in times of multiple partners over time in the dating world. Try it. What have you got to lose? It's not like there's a risk in not having more drinks before proceeding to have sex. I, I can't focus enough on it for those people who have had challenges in their life 
even outside of sex with whether it's work or relationships or raising kids or finances it just takes it to another whole level because we're talking about pleasure aren't we and if we can increase our pleasure through a change in our habit around alcohol why the heck not exactly so it's remembering the orgasm you know having the residual energy or the residual sensation of it um a in general last longer but then also the memory the clarity of it and and i don't know i mean it, i think it also comes back to connection you know whether it's to yourself or to your partner ironically i used to seek out alcohol in order to connect more with people you know that would when i would tend to have supposedly deep conversations although now sober i've been around for those deep conversations at one in the morning and they're not usually that <laughs> I will say like, I've always been a fan of morning sex over evening sex. And I think, um, you know, there was, I'm not saying like for a decade, all sex was inebriated. That's also an exaggeration, but it was definitely this um, pattern. And I just think you can get to much more interesting and deep connections with people whether it's being more in tune to the communication, whether that's like actually talking in the moment or, you know, what the other person body is doing or what your body is really doing, like, you know, just connecting on a whole other level. Yeah, I agree about morning sex. Uh, the other kind of sex, uh, the other time of sex, that's pretty great too. You know, I've said to, and I'm sure people have said to their partners before, if you wake up in the middle of the night and can't sleep, by all means, never fear waking me up too. I'm there for you. That sort of sleepy, middle of the night, dream state, not too fully conscious and aware, but still aware and conscious and, 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 and not inebriated. And just making love in the middle of the night, it's almost like a dream state where is this really happening? That's a pretty wonderful thing. If you give each other permission to do that and experience that, it can be pretty fulfilling. Yeah, I have that permission, but my husband's always harder to wake than he seems to think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the funny probably, thing. It probably goes both ways, so. <laughs> right? Back in my drinking days, yeah, you would never have woken me, but I sleep lightly now, probably with the uh, underlying uh, hope that someone's going to wake me up. I've touched here before, in fact, back to episode one of being stuck and uh, some of the ways to get unstuck. And I was struck by something you shared that I can imagine resonates with everyone listening. And that is, you can't start a new chapter if you keep reading the last one. We tend to look back sometimes with regret and with great focus on why and, and why not and how not. It speaks to trying to move forward without getting too in-depth about it. What are your thoughts, particularly when you posted that about can't start a new chapter if you're stuck on the old one? The short version is you need to be at a place that you're willing to break up with your own BS. You know, like we really are very good at rehashing things that we think should matter and still matter. And I always ask clients, you know, at what, what point are you going to decide that that doesn't need to matter anymore? Like ultimately all these things, all these things and the stories we tell ourselves are decisions. And when we start to look at it that way, um, you know, an example for me was during the pandemic, I did uh, 
the Tony Robbins like online. I don't remember what it's called anymore, but it really, that interaction, there was like 25,000 people on one Zoom. It was pretty cool. <laughs> it helped me reframe my, the relationship and the stories I was telling myself around, you know, some very tragic things that happened to me as, as a young woman, you know, at 17, well, I grew up with an alcoholic father at 17, he committed suicide and um, I just sort of like adopted alcoholism as a coping strategy for the better part of two decades. And with a very sarcastic, jaded um, mindset around that even, <laughs> you know, and I think once I realized, wait a minute, I'm like forgetting about all of the beautiful things that my father taught me and like the incredible human he was. And, you know, I just kind of like put it in this, victim capsule it's a choice what you focus on and whether that's looking back again and again and just deciding to focus on a different part of the chapter I mean that's one step and then I argue the next step and what we're not very good at is focusing on the vision for the future it's like okay yes that happened but what do we want and really shifting all of the energy they're spending sort of dwelling in the past into writing the next chapter and understanding that if you are intentional about what you're doing and what, well, first of all, understanding what you want and then reverse engineering that and being intentional about what you're doing on a day-to-day. -day. It's not to say that you have to be productive or intentional like every single hour of every single day, but there does need to be sort of like the things that move the needle forward to whatever you want. And then maybe Maybe it's a business, and like in my case, that's what I'm focusing on right now, but maybe it's, you know, something else. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's um, moving to another country. I don't know. But whatever it is that's sort of your deepest desire, like for me, the deepest desire is the thing that's sort of on your radar, in your consciousness. Like you maybe don't really consider it as an option, but something keeps drawing your attention back to that as like a possibility or an idea. You know, I just really enjoy helping clients, you know, play with that and get really clear on what their deepest desire is and then construct their whole strategy, whether it's um, mindset, wellness. Um, I also work with people who want to, are the early stages of building their businesses and doing it from a very intentional and wellness infused place so that it's enjoyable and sustainable and um, truly aligned with, with what they want. You bring up a good point. We tend to formalize, um, uh, sort of um, write out um, a plan around a business that we hope to be successful. And we don't always do that. Talking about dating, we're attracted to someone whether we're swiping online or whether we're meeting people socially, we're attracted to someone. The next step is someone asks someone out, you go out, it went well, you go out again. But the slowing it down and formalizing, what is it I want? And when you get to a point where you're both kind of on the same page enough to not feel too vulnerable about saying, what is it you want? And then having a vision for what it is you're doing rather than just waking up in seven months thinking, well, the sex was good, we're hanging out, everything's kind of fine, but we've never really articulated what it is we're looking to do here together and what success looks like. 
I think that, you know, I feel silly even admitting it now at, in my late 50s that I don't give that enough thought. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that are in the same boat. Do you work with people around intentional relationships of a romantic nature? Yeah. Interesting. I work mostly with men around this. Um, and I think to your point, A, I think it's essential that we have those sort of questions, those deep conversations um, when it seems appropriate. It's like at that point in the relationship. But I would invite you to really have that conversation with yourself first. So you're not waiting for an answer and then going to figure out what you want based on someone else's answer. That You have a very clear answer going in and then whatever their answer um, is will hit you differently. And, you know, you can potentially change your mind, of course, but it's feeling that deep rooted confidence in yourself and what you want and, and clarity about how do you want to live your life? I remember, you know, in my early days dating, like I was really very flexible on so many things just to, to seek out this, this perceived love connection that I thought was going to resolve everything. Right. And of course, I think very differently about love now, but it's so important to be intentional in all aspects of our lives. And I know now more women that have taken an intentional moment and like journaled and be very clear, like essentially sketched out their dream relationship. And I can tell you like, whether you believe in the woo or not, essentially, if you are intentionally putting that energy out into the universe and being very clear about what you want, you're so much more likely to get it than not. <laughs> I love that. That's a nice way to close. I, I want to say that the thing that strikes me the most about you, because we get what we get on social media. And when I saw you, I thought you're putting out some great content. You obviously have a successful business around helping people realize their potential. And you seemed pleasant. And you sent me great photos that I can use to promote this episode. And uh, But what I get from you now is this this... This vision, this confidence, and I thank you for all of that and for being a part of the Blue Hotel podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Jeff. All the you're, lovely things you just said. You're so welcome. I would love to do it again down the road, and I wish you a great winter in a, in a beautiful, warm place with your family. Thank you. She did it right at the Blue Hotel. She did it right. And still to come, the climax of episode eight, another adult bedtime story. And we're going to go back to the first episode and present an encore airing of the narration known as The Whoring Twenties. Just last night, Carla was awoken for the fifth time as many days by her dreams. She lay still of body but busy of mind, immersed in thoughts of when and where and what and with whom. The longer she spent without, the darker her thoughts had become. It felt like an eternity and not by choice either. The world had changed and she was certain that the only thing worse than being single during a pandemic might have been being partnered with somebody who was driving you crazy and not in a good way. Carla was thankful that wasn't her. 
She'd parted ways with her on-again, off-again boyfriend before anyone had any idea the world was about to change in a way, the likes of which hadn't been experienced in a hundred years. Quite literally, when within the two years ending spring 1920, 500 million people, about a third of the world's population back then, had been infected in four successive waves, causing a death toll of, get this, somewhere between 20 and 50 million, making it one of the deadliest pandemics in history. For anyone who needed some perspective, that should do it. It certainly worked for Carla. She longed for nights that made the sheets soaking wet from the summer sweat that could only come from the fire and the feeling of bodies bare. It was as captivating as it was cruel, the images that appeared in those recurring dreams, because when they ended, which was usually just as things were getting heated, her eyes opened to the reality that the bed was empty but for her. Sometimes unable to fall back to sleep, she'd land upon some amateur porn, which was hit and miss, but when it hit, it hit home and hard. Again just last night, lying bare on his back, a tanned body against the backdrop of the whitest of sheets. He was blindfolded, arms above his head, hands clasped, chest bold, thighs strong and spread wide, cock long and bent, pointing northwest. And that's where Candy, probably her real name too, came in with her mouth watering and tongue ready to circle the big cock's head and taste the dew that had collected at its opening. Like Candy, Carla was also obsessed about the sticky sweetness of a man's pre-cum. Carla couldn't tell whether Candy ended up faking her orgasm once she started riding that thing, but she herself took all of about five minutes to find herself on the verge, another five to climax. Carla squirted like a fountain onto the hardwood floor below. She wondered what people did when Broadloom was all the rage. She mopped herself off of the bedroom floor and she got ready for bed. It was what now, her 77th consecutive Thursday night home alone? Lockdown had come with too many nights that had turned to weeks and months, too much thinking, masturbating was kind of getting old. What Carla wanted was to be rattled and raged upon. Glimpses of some of the more insane moments of her own life permeated her daydreams, too. Like that time in the heat of summer, she went to see Rage Against the Machine, hammering it loud and live at the stadium and damn near everybody in the house was drenched and dripping with the energy and the optimism of the show. So many bodies so close, so close that when she backed herself up, pushing her ass against his hardness, they prompted the stranger to grip her hips just lightly until she confirmed that her backup was no accident by pushing back harder like a ram in reverse. They would have fucked right then and there if they could have. When the show was over, she took him by the hand and pulled him into the cab where they sucked each other's mouths on their way to her loft, where lights invitingly twinkled about the ceiling above the bed and surrounded the headboard and wasting no time it was between the doorway and the mattress. Every bit of their clothing was shed. They landed on the bed together, and his hard cock was the same long bent affair from last night's porn, and it was Carla's mouth this time that met it, her tongue circling its head, her lips sucking away the sweet pre-cum she loved so. And while she took as many inches of his shaft as she could, the yin and yang of their sixty-nine put his lips upon her thrusting mound. And while she continued sucking, he lapped up her juice as he tongued her sweet and swollen clit. And they spent the next half hour alternating between sucking one another off and fucking. It was the first time ever that Carla experienced a guy who, after pumping her with a shaft, would go back to going down on her. Not once, but again and again. 
The hotter and wetter her tight box became with the thrusts of his cock, the more he desired her taste. She finally came with the grinding of his pelvis, and she came again with the stroking of his fingers and tongue. It energized her to get on top and stay on top and ride him like the unbroken wild horse he was, until he was ready to explode, and when he was, he pulled out and buried it between her lips, and she happily took it all down her throat. It was the music, and it was the heat, and it was the dancing, and it was the need, and it was a hell of a good night. And these were the stories that crept into Carla's dreams, on these nights of nothingness that had turned into Groundhog Day, over and over and over again. But now the need was back with a vengeance because lockdown was done. She'd had her second jab. She was ready to put herself out there again. She laughed at a caption she'd read on Dan Savage's column about how post-pandemic the whoring twenties had arrived. Bring it on, she decided. Now where was that porn star on his back with his hands tied above his head and lightning rod cock ready to be mounted? Tinder? Plenty of fish? No thanks, she thought. She wished more men showed up at yoga. Then Carla stumbled upon a piece on bustle that stated what might seem like the obvious. Location is everything. The top ten places to find a hookup. Given the luck she'd had at the Rage show, Carla was surprised only 2% of respondents reported getting lucky with someone they met at a concert. About 3% said they met their match for one night at a store. 4% through a neighbor. 5% at a gym or a museum. 7% on public transportation. 8% at a wedding. 9% at a nightclub. 11% at a hotel, in the bar presumably. 14% at a non-hotel bar or party. And the number one place among the 10,000 people in the survey found someone to fuck for the first time on the street. Just walking along and what do you know, a stranger or perhaps someone with whom you're acquainted or maybe a friend you hadn't fucked yet. Carla found herself doing a mental inventory of her experiences. Concert check, store check, through a neighbor for sure. At the gym, no. At a museum, she gave head once there. Public transportation, no way. At a wedding, when she was 19. Nightclub, hotel, bar, at a party. These were all kind of like shooting fish in a barrel, she figured. The one thing that had changed was no more boozy sex for her. The best sex was done when you're sober. But never mind that. It's Friday. And finally, a long-awaited appointment with Maria, Carla's hairdresser. And Maria did more than just cut hair. She had a side hustle with her partner, Chloe. The pair would book high-end Airbnbs and by invitation only through word of mouth, through parties where anything could and did go down. A throwback to Roman orgies, sex parties. Swing town, as it were. Carla had heard the stories from Maria and decided maybe it was time to try it out this Saturday. Picture the space, a penthouse suite, a well-appointed terrace with heaters and loungers in a hot tub, and a massive great room with what can only be called the world's biggest sex bed. Two black leather symmetrical U-shaped sectionals, like two giant U-shaped magnets, tips touching, making for a 12 by 12 foot square, in the middle of which is a king-sized bed. One big leather playground that's 144 square feet of leather, on and against which anything could happen, explained Maria. Carla had a couple of questions, like, who's coming? Everyone's coming, said Maria slyly. 
adding lots of couples for whom vanilla sex was never going to be enough, and some single women and single men, and you and me and Chloe and a DJ and a bartender, all in maybe 28, 30 people. Carla couldn't remember whether Maria took part. Yeah, Chloe and I do together, she said. We sort of set the tone and get things started. We get all dulled up and put ourselves in the middle of the big bed and play. And everyone that's on the list has to arrive between 10 and 11, and some people actually come just to watch and have a couple of drinks, and the rest of us are as wild as we want to be. Carla couldn't remember this either, so she asked, Did you ever like cock? Maria laughed and said, It's not like I never liked it. I just like pussy more. And I wouldn't want to live with a man, but I love to live with Chloe. It just works better day to day. Carla herself was confirmed by. She couldn't imagine a sex life without men and women in it. Her appetite ebbed and flowed for both sexes. She identified as fluid. She figured it had more to do with the energy of the person, and she'd gotten as wet for women as she had for men. Her body's reaction as much as her brain informed much of her decision-making around relationships and sex. In a perfect world, her mouth would get the taste of pussy and her cunt would get filled with cock. So this party seemed right up her alley. What she got off on most was the sounds she could coax out of her lovers when they came. Speaking of sounds, Carla asked Maria, what about the music? It's totally on fire, assured Maria. DJ Waves is totally lit with jams from all the eras. You'll love her. When Saturday arrived, that morning Carla slipped on shorts and flip-flops and a skimpy t-shirt pushed her hair up on top of her head and rode her bike, locking it up in front of jet fuel, where she ordered a mocha and parked her butt on a stool at the front, with its open windows and morning risers passing by on Parliament Street. Sufficiently caffeinated, she rode herself east along Carlton towards Church Street and north, dismounting and locking up again at the rack by Cruz and Tango, the bars in the building where karaoke nights had just started up again and the drag shows were back in all their glory. But mornings on church were a much quieter affair as slowly people came back to life with their coffee and conversation about the night before and the plans for the next. Just as she secured her bike in place again, she heard a voice, familiar and deep, Carla. Turning around, it was Cassius, her ex, the on-again, off-again love of her life. They'd crossed the country together, abandoning their lives out west, where they'd first met three years earlier landing in Toronto, diving into one another's hearts and souls and bodies with an intense passion. They were all fire together. They burned hot, too hot. He was expressive to a fault and full of unresolved feelings about his past. She was open and trusting of his intentions, but emotionally closed off to the point that instead of talking about things that needed to be talked about, she turned and ran and then came back. But in the end, it was he who actually bailed in another of his recurring midlife crises. And now two years had passed since they'd laid eyes upon each other, two-thirds of which was pandemic. And now here they were, just three feet apart, on Church Street. Carla laughed, which is what she did every time she saw Cassius. It was a combination of nervous excitement and resignation. When they were in the same room or even close proximity like this, they tingled just by each other's presence. How are you, she asked. Better now, said Cassius. And it was the truth. Carla's presence was electric. She was the girl with the fireworks coming out of her head. 
Her green eyes were like that of an exotic cat. It was not uncommon for people to call Carla the most interesting face in the room. And it melted him like butter, and she knew it. And what Carla loved most about him? His hands, and the way they made her feel when he touched her. She'd always say, I need your man hands on me. And while things had ended pretty badly, on this morning, all these months later, the past didn't seem to matter. They were both just happy to be unmasked and free to be on the street together. Carla said, what's going on? Cassie has pointed up to the second story window. Underwear. I need to get some. Maybe a swimsuit. You know this place is my weakness. They'd come to browse and shop together here before. He'd try on clothes and she'd help by retrieving different sizes and they'd get themselves all worked up in the process. You want to come help, he asked. Carla and Cassius proceeded up the six stairs to the doorway, then up a flight of stairs to the men's room. The name of the shop, the only shop in the entire city that had the kind of clothes Cassius would wear. They had the coolest underwear and bathing suits. Trying on clothes had long made him unbelievably horny. He'd come to realize it had a lot to do with the reality that the only thing separating his bare ass from the rest of the world were the paper-thin walls of the change rooms. And you could hear voices and see people's legs passing by. And the cute salesgirls and women would bring different sizes to you. He used to go with his high school girlfriend, help her find clothes, too, and they would end up in the stall together. And these experiences extended to all of his serious relationships with women, including Carla. They entered the shop together, and she said, I'll come help you when you find a few things to try on. Then she headed to peruse the sex toys part of the store. Cassius had probably bought a dozen bathing suits from these racks. He'd gone back to wearing the ones he first wore at 13 and 14 years old, when Speedo was about the only brand anyone talked about. He'd shown up on the surfing beaches of Southern California, where every guy wore board shorts, and people said, what are you, on the Canadian swim team? And he would give in to the peer pressure and ended up wearing the long shorts. Until one day he said, fuck it. Not only did he want to get a tan on the upper part of his legs, he just wanted to wear what men on European beaches wore. And when people questioned or laughed at his bathing suit choices, all he had to say was, would James Bond wear board shorts? Cassius found three pairs to try on and went into the stall which didn't have a door, but rather a curtain that never quite closed all the way. And that kind of turned him on, too. He got naked and slipped into the first pair. Just as he was pulling them up, Carla's voice, How you make it out in there? He pulled back the curtain and said, What do you think of these? His balls were hidden, but his cock not so much. At least not all of it. Carla laughed and said, I like those. She reached out and squeezed the exposed tip between her fingers. And then withdrew her hand and said, I probably should have asked you whether you're seeing anyone or not. Cassius said, Carla, I know us better than to have brought you up here were I seeing someone right now. I've been on a pandemic solo mission. Me too, she replied, returning her hand to his cock and saying, Is that a rocket in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? The men's room staff weren't oblivious so much as they were indifferent to what patrons got up to, within reason. Cassius took off the first suit and tried on the second. All right, how about this one? You know that trying on suits with me will never work. I don't think I've seen you without a hard-on since I met you. I don't know if we could even go to a beach together without causing a scene. They'd only ever been to Hanlon's Point Beach together, where clothing was optional, which they loved. They'd walk up and down the beach holding hands while getting an all-over tan. His cock just didn't go down when he was around Carla. 
He tried on the third suit with the same results. And snatched the three pairs up and found a pack of his favorite underwear and he took everything to the counter and paid. Down the stairs together they went, stopping at her bicycle. Carla said, you remember Maria, the hairstylist, asked Cassius. You remember she used to put on those learn-to-love-better classes? Cassius recalled the blowjob classes. Well, that too, said Carla. Not that you needed lessons, said Cassius. Speaking of which, she shot back. Tonight, she's throwing one of her famous parties at a penthouse. I'm going to go give it a shot. You should come. Cassius said, you think? They'd broken up before they'd managed to get to one of Maria's sex parties, although they had played together with men and women and once a couple, which was Carla's idea, but when it got heated and they'd swap partners, she couldn't bear to watch him without getting emotional. The whole thing backfired. The fantasy of it all often fueled their fire, but maybe the fantasy was best left at that. Cassius thought and said, we haven't been together in forever. Are you sure it's a good idea? Carla said, well, I know you don't mind me with the women. Of course not, he said. How could I get jealous of that? Carla continued, and I don't mind seeing women suck your cock, or for that matter, men. It turned her on a lot to watch Cassius getting blown. It was the fucking that she still wasn't sure she could handle, even though they were no longer a couple. She thought about it for a second and said, I think that our both being by was one of the best things we had going for us. Cassius couldn't argue. Carla added, I've come to terms with you being with other women. But as long as I know it's a one-off, or at least it's in my presence and you're going home with me, I think I'm okay with it. No matter what happens with whom, we go home together. Cassius looked Carla in the eye and said, My God, it's good to see you. I'll pick you up tonight. Just name the time. They hugged and kissed and went their separate ways for the moment. Getting ready, Carla showered but didn't wash her hair. She loved how it looked on the second or third day, that rock star just got fucked look. She decided not to wear anything, but simply slipped a trench coat over her naked body, and then decided it a good idea to pull some underwear on because she was mid-cycle, which meant perpetually drenched between her legs. Even when she wasn't aroused, she pulled some strappy shoes onto her bare feet and headed down the hall to the elevator and down to the street to meet Cassius, who was waiting at the front door. They got into his car and drove off. She said, you'll recognize the building. Turns out it was his former address, a seven-story condo building on the east side between King and Queen Streets, where he'd first lived with her when they moved back to the city from out west. He'd been on the roof of the building. In fact, they both had, having fucked against the glass railing in the heat of the afternoon and on hot summer nights both of them craving to be seen by residents of the neighboring buildings, just for a laugh. She loved getting on her knees and bringing him to climax in her mouth and wondered if anybody had witnessed it through their telescope or maybe captured it on their iPhones. But tonight it was the penthouse, with its private terrace and the massive 144-square-foot leather sectional. Maria had hired a door person, a young cute guy, built and dressed in black pants and a bow tie, no shirt, like a Chippendales dancer. He greeted Carla and Cassius, checked their names off the list, and now they stood witnessing the scene that was slowly unfolding before them. Maria and Chloe were holding court in the middle of the living room, dressed like you might expect the co-host of a sex party to be dressed. Stunning bordel lingerie with its requisite access points. Chloe was leaning against the black leather back of the sectional. Knees up, just a wee bit, legs spread. Maria was next to her, playful fingers between Chloe's legs. 
She plunged one in and pulled it out and fed it to Chloe's mouth. Carla and Cassius' eyes met Maria and Chloe's and exchanged smiles. Then they headed out to the terrace to get a proper view of the summer evening. They faced west to take in the lit-up city night. A few people were cocktailing outside and breaking the ice with new faces and chatting with familiar ones, too. Through the window they watched as Chloe returned the favor, fingering Maria and feeding her mouth with her fingers, equally wet by the juice that was flowing from between her legs, too. Carla wanted in on that action, as turned on as she was by Chloe especially, whom she didn't know that well, actually, but was drawn to with her long midnight black hair and incredibly full breasts. She wanted to feel the weight of them in each hand. She took Cassius's hand and led him back inside, and they went to the massive walk-in closet off the master. And she kissed him deeply and said, I fucking missed you, you know. He said, I fucking missed you back. He pulled off his shirt and shoes and pants and stood naked facing Carla, who just had to slip out of her trench, and with shoes off, she was now naked too. But for a simple body chain harness necklace she'd ordered but never worn until now, it framed her beautiful breasts. Carla's nipples were as hard as her pussy was wet, and she told Cassius, feel the puddle between my legs. He loved how lubricated she always seemed to be. Before they proceeded, she said, I feel like playing, but I don't want to be out of your sight. Cassius smiled and said, and I don't want to be out of your sight either. They agreed and sealed it with a kiss. It was still early and the bedrooms were quiet, but they could see the living room had more bodies already. And they took a spot side by side in the sectional, not far from where Maria and Chloe were playing. Maria was now face down, and her hands were wrapped around Chloe's ass and her mouth met the space between her legs and her tongue worked her clit. Chloe noticed Carla's interest and broke into a wide grin and waited until Maria lifted her gaze and noticed Carla there. And just as the three ladies were getting comfortable, another couple climbed up and took a spot side by side, directly across from Cassius. And they, like he and Carla, were completely bare and had a similar loving energy for one another. The guy's cock was stiff and pointing north, he watched her hands grip upon it. Cassius was just as stiff. He loved watching women suck their men off. And it was as if she read his mind because two seconds later down she went, dropping her mouth down on her man's shaft. She was playful, teasingly so, looking over at Cassius occasionally as she sucked. Maria's mouth was still busy on Chloe's mound, and Carla had cozied up next to the dark-haired beauty and watched Maria's tongue and fingers at work on her partner's cunt. Carla would wait for a proper sign from Maria before making a move, Maria occasionally lifting her head to meet Chloe's eyes, and she did quietly communicate that it was cool for Carla to join in. And so Chloe and Carla's mouth engaged, and Carla got her wish, feeling the weight of Chloe's incredibly full breasts, fingered and lightly pinched her nipples too, and Chloe liked it. And she liked being the center of attention. Carla glanced over at Cassius with wide eyes. She glanced down at Cassius's hard cock and thought, that thing won't be unattended for long, especially the way he was sitting there, proud, arms casually stretched left and right along the back of the top of the couch. She figured it was killing him not to stroke his cock, and just as she thought that, so did he, apparently. He reached down and started stroking. And just then the couple across from him gave him a visual cue to come join them. Carla, seeing it all unfold, gave Cassius an encouraging wink. He made his way over to the couple. Her name was Katie. 
position between her man and Cassius, and she put a hand on each man's throbbing cock. Then she directed her stare at her man, who shot back a look that said, show me. So much of what was happening was communicated incredibly well with body language more than words. After stroking both men a little longer, Katie repositioned her body to take Cassius into her mouth, keeping one hand on her man's cock, using the other at the base of the cock that was now in her mouth. It turned her man on to watch, too. She sucked Cassius like she was auditioning for a porno, which turned him on even more. The excitement of it all wasn't lost on Carla, either. Then Maria took Chloe's mouth while Carla used her fingers between her legs. She couldn't resist tasting what was on them. It was delicious. Then Carla noticed Katie's enthusiasm for Cassius's cock, and she couldn't blame her. But she was hungry for some cock, too, so she left Maria and Chloe to play and crawled over and took care of Katie's man, spitting on his cock, and worked her hand around the tip and spit some more and rubbed the wetness all around its throbbing head. It seemed to nearly double in size now that her hands were upon it, too. And she locked in on Cassius's eyes for a bit while she stroked and sucked the other man's cock. Both men were getting worked, and they were enjoying the growing show around them. The feeling of bulging veins and the knowledge that the power of her lips and tongue and jaw could make a man explode and drain his balls was empowering to Carla. The men were getting hungry, too, for the taste of what was between the ladies' legs. As they pondered their next moves, they could see the leather surface was becoming filled with more bodies. Carla and Katie were on fire and having fun. They started synchronizing their moves, and then they lifted their heads, letting their hands work the shafts as their mouths suddenly met, and they could taste one another's man on their lips, and their tongues dove in and out as they stroked the cocks. And then they switched and took the men they'd arrived with into their own hands and mouths, working with even more enthusiasm. Soon both women were decidedly anxious to fill the holes between their thighs, and they mounted each of their man's cocks, knees bent, feet planted on the leather, rising and dropping, and synchronizing that motion too. What a team. As she bounced up and down on him, Cassius reached behind Carla, using his fingers to feel the entry point, rubbing all around her hole. She loved when he did that, prodding her lips as he did. She gripped her tits and presented them to him, and he sucked her nipples intensely, more intensely than anyone ever had. She loved the way they were being watched by the people around them, the ones in the kitchen and the ones just arriving. Once Carla was on his cock, Cassius forgot anyone else was even there. It was just the two of them for all he cared now. He gripped her ass with one hand and her neck with the other and propelled her harder than she'd remember him ever doing down onto his cock. They could have and would have come then and there, but wanted to save it for a private moment. There was no question they were still in love, and they knew it of each other, and they slowed their pace right down and they stopped, and they hugged tightly, letting the rest of the world around them wash away as they closed their eyes and gave their reunion thought. Then Cassius whispered in Carla's ear, Come, come with me. And she lifted off of him, and holding each other's hands, they made their way past the master bedroom, which was now occupied by a threesome. And they slipped into the bathroom, where Carla sat down to pee, and she said, My cunt's on fire. And Cassius was still hard as a rock, and she put her lips on it. She sucked it a bit more. Cassius said, Okay, let's go see if there's a free bed. The next bedroom was occupied, but the third was empty, so they took possession. 
Carla got on her back and spread herself as wide as possible, and Cassius was inside of her in two seconds and all the way in. His cock had never felt better or thicker than it did right now, she thought, and he told her he'd never been so turned on in all of his life. Ground his pelvis into her, making circles, barely pulling out, staying good and deep, knowing the pressure on her clit was just enough, and her G-spot felt the tension, too. Their lips met and their tongues danced and darted, and the grinding continued and the pace picked up ever so slightly, and then faster and faster still until he could hear in Carla's breathing that she was close and closer still. And it was when she started to mention God that he knew it was coming, and when it did, Cassius let himself go too, exploding inside of Carla's cunt while he screamed her name. And then they lay still, but not for long. He pulled his cock out of her, and they gathered their clothes and dressed, and said nothing to no one. And they left. Cassius took Carla home, put her into his bed, and they fucked some more until they were completely drained. And smiling, they fell asleep. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. Please take me by to the Blue Looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man Podcast. Join me, host Mike C, as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.